Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. My name is Roy Bensvi, and this week I have on Vince Spicer, who is the author of The World in a Grain, The Story of Sin and How It Transformed Civilization. I thought this book was unbelievable. It's a topic I never really thought about, and I think most people don't think about either. I consider myself an environmentalist. I care about the environment, but it's one of those things that you never really hear about. There's not really any documentary that mentions anything about it. You hear about fracking, plastic pollution, overfishing, you know, soil erosion, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't really hear about how important sand is in every facet of our day-to-day. So I thought it was pretty amazing to hear about the importance, the history, how it came to be, how it is actually crucial to our uh, modern innovation and modern life and modern convenience and technology and everything around us. So it was pretty, it was an amazing book, honestly. And, uh, you know, I was happy to have Vince on and to talk about this uh, because it is a finite mineral. And we, you know, like he says on the podcast, we can't just use any sand. So there's specific sand that we have to use for our industrial needs. And it's a finite material, just like anything, it's going to disappear if we use too much of it. And we are using too much of it. So we have to start thinking about, are there other ways to do things? Do we consume less of it? It's a lot of questions that, you know, Vince and I try to go over. Hopefully he gives some answers. He gives more, obviously, in detail in his book, which again, The World in a Grain. So if you guys want to pick that up, uh, it's on Amazon. It's a great book. And yeah, I hope everyone's still keeping safe, staying home. This was recorded on April 16th, but it's being released on April 30th. So I'm just having to do more podcasts now. And since I've devoted my time to this, I'm I'm just putting in more time and recording more, but there's only so much I can upload. So I'm going to be uploading two podcasts every week and hopefully recording two or three. So so there's a consistent stream of, of, you know, at least two podcasts every week. So I hope you guys enjoy them. I have my email in the show notes. If there are any suggestions, requests, I appreciate it. I'd love to hear about it. Feel free to reach out. Also, if you guys are listening, subscribe, rate, review. Those things really help the show. So, you know, I appreciate it. And I'm seeing that we're gradually growing. There's more and more people listening from uh, different countries, you know, from Brazil to Lebanon to Australia to a lot of different countries. So it's fun to see that. Uh, it's fun to see the the growth of the podcast. So I really appreciate it. And yeah, without further ado, here is Vince Beiser. Hey, Vince, how you doing? Doing great. How about yourself? Good, man. Thank you. Um, thanks for coming on the show, first of all. I know it's not sure, easy it's great times. to be here. Not easy times anywhere right now. So I appreciate you taking some time and uh, coming to talk to us. Yeah, sure. Well, listen, always, always glad to talk about this issue near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So how is, so you said, uh, we talked a little bit before the, uh, before we started recording, you said you're in LA 
what's the atmosphere in, in LA right now? You know, it's hard to say because I haven't really left my house very much for the last couple of few weeks. Yeah. I'm just hunkered down with my family. I've got kids and a wife and dog and a cat. And so we're just, you know, kids are doing their school online as much as they can. And um, luckily, my most of my work is remote anyway. So I'm, I'm still uh, working pretty much as much as ever. And same with my wife. But um, it's pretty strange. You know, everything's shut down. I'm sure same as where you are. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely weird. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe tell uh, the little, the listeners a little bit uh, about yourself. Well, so I'm a I'm a journalist uh, and an author. I've been a freelancer for most of my career. I do mostly uh, kind of longer, deeper, more investigative type magazine type long form articles. And uh, my first book came out a year or two ago now, called. Uh, the world in a grain, the story of sand and how it transformed civilization. It's an amazing book. Um, I actually, I finished, I can't, I, I read half the book and then another about the other half on, on ebook. And uh, I'll be honest, I consider myself, you know, somewhat of an environmentalist. I've heard about fracking, plastic pollution, carbon emissions, coastal erosions, you know, deforestation, et cetera, everything. But I think you're literally the first person I've heard talk about the issue of sand. Do you think people realize how dependent we are on sand and, and the scale of the problem? Well, I'll tell you, when I started working on this issue about, you know, four odd years ago, really practically nobody had heard of it at all. And still very few people have, but, but awareness is growing. It's starting to bubble up. I mean, there's, um, well, up until the coronavirus took over, everybody's attention there were yeah. you were there were uh, more and more news stories about it there was more media about it um some of the uh international uh, environmental organizations were starting to pick up on it so it's it's still really way below most people's radar um but hopefully you know once we get um once we get past the whole uh coronavirus crisis um we can start worrying about other things again <laughs> Yeah, that's a hundred percent of everyone's attention. Both media, politicians, citizens is is coronavirus right now. Everything took a backseat. So, why is sand so important to, to human existence? It's so. I mean, you talk about sand. It seems like the most trivial thing in the world, right? It just seems like it's everywhere, and who cares about sand? But in fact, sand is the most important solid substance on Earth. And I say that because it's it's the raw material that our cities are made out of, right? If you look around at pretty much any city in the world today, um, all of those buildings, those apartment blocks, office towers, shopping malls, they're all made out of concrete. And concrete, turns out, is basically just sand and gravel that have been glued together. So those are all just huge piles of sand that you're looking at. Also, all the roads that connect all those buildings, every street and sidewalk and freeway and highway also made out of concrete, meaning it's mostly made from sand. The glass, every window in every one of those buildings, glass is just melted down sand. So every piece of glass, whether it's a window, whether it's a drinking glass, whether it's the, the screen of your iPhone, also made out of sand. Even the silicon chips that power our computers and our cell phones, also made out of sand. So in a nutshell, no sand, no modern civilization. And the crazy thing is, we are starting to run out. Yeah, I mean, you basically argue in, in your book, and, and rightfully so, that without sand, we wouldn't have glass. Without glass, we wouldn't have our society. 
uh, it wouldn't be anywhere near the level of, of modern sophistication that, that we're currently at. So why, why do you think glass was so important to our technological evolution? So glass is really, really important in lots of ways. But I'll tell you the one that really kind of made me sit up that I'd never really thought about until I started doing the research for this book was um, the importance of lenses, right? If you think about it, um, it's the lenses. Lenses do basically two things for us. Um, they allow us to see things that are far away that we wouldn't be able to see otherwise. And they allow us to see things that are that are very, very small that we wouldn't be allowed to see otherwise, right? They sort of give us superpowers, right? Like supervision through telescopes and microscopes and even seeing eyeglasses. And without those two tools, without the telephone, I'm sorry, without the telescope and the microscope, the whole scientific revolution of the Renaissance basically wouldn't have happened, right? We wouldn't know nearly as much about astronomy um, the movement of planets, the origins of the universe, if we didn't have telescopes. And we certainly wouldn't know anything about, you know, biology, about cells, about the movements of atoms and molecules, if we didn't have microscopes to look at them. So without those things, without those little pieces of glass, basically, you know, we would be we would never have had the scientific revolution that we did, and we would be, you know, probably hundreds of years uh, behind where we are now. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you don't really think about it. It's, uh, glass, it's, you kind of take it for granted. But when you when when I read it in the book, and you put in that perspective, that oh, okay, this was such an advantage to the countries that did have it at the time, and a disadvantage to the countries that didn't have it at the time. And then you lay it out as to why that's that really put things into perspective for me. So basically, you know, glass was one thing, but obviously, the you talk about roads, um, how roads exploded after the invention of the automobile. You can just mm -hmm. kind of give us a brief history lesson as to why this exponential growth occurred. Yeah. So another really fascinating thing that I had never really thought about before, but based, but up until about. A hundred odd years ago, um, there were almost no paved roads at all in the United States or really anywhere else um, because people got around by boat, they traveled by river, and they got, and on land, they traveled either by train or by horse, right? So, so roads were kind of an afterthought. And most of the roads and the streets within cities were unpaved, which meant that, um, you know, in the winter and whenever it rained, they'd, they'd turn into mud and really slow things down. Um, and it was the really the invention of concrete that sort of happened um, in the late 1800s that made people realize, huh, we could start putting this stuff down on our roads and our roads would be a lot more effective. They'd be much a much uh, more useful way to travel around on. But that didn't really catch on until until it was sort of married up with another invention that came along at almost exactly the same time, which of course is the automobile, the car, right? The car gets invented in the around about the 1890s and really takes off. Everybody wants to have a car, but you can't drive a car on a muddy, you know, rutted you know, bumpy road. It's really, really hard. So all of a sudden you have millions of people owning cars suddenly clamoring for smooth, uh, usable roads. And it just so happened that concrete had sort of come along at almost the same time. So those two things together 
caused just an explosion in road paving. We went from having, I mean, in the, at the beginning of the 19, of the 1900s, there was barely over a hundred miles of paved road in the entire United States. Um, and within 10 years, that number had grown by thousands and thousands of miles. And of course, it's just kept growing ever since, um, you know, all through the decades. And, and especially when the, the interstate system was built up in the 50s to now where we have, of course, millions of miles of paved roads. And those roads have completely changed the way that we live, right? If you think about, um, you know, the sort of basic American model of cities with suburbs around them. That would have been impossible without paved roads to enable people to drive their cars back and forth from the suburbs to the cities. So in a very real way, roads didn't just make life easier. They completely changed how we live. And there was a lot of pushback, right, initially when they started to pave these roads through these cities and states. Well, yeah, what happened was, so in the 1950s, after the Second World War, or I guess starting really in the, in the late 40s, um, President Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was president at the time, he had this idea. He was like, we're going to have what we really need in this country is a system of roads, interconnected roads that will allow you to go to travel all over the country. Right. A, a single unified network of highways that'll take you from coast to coast, north to south. So seemed like a great idea at the time, they thought. And. But uh, there were a lot of problems with it. So we're talking about the interstate system that we all know. Um, but basically, you know, Eisenhower got together a bunch of planners who looked at, you know, all the cities that they wanted to connect. And they said, OK, easy. The simplest way, the most efficient way to connect all these cities will just run up, you know, four or six or eight lane highway right through the middle of Baltimore, right through the middle of Philadelphia, right through the middle of Salt Lake City. And that they did that in a lot of places, and it had a lot of really terrible effects. One thing is they built these, a lot of the roads went into lower income communities and, and communities of color, right, where, where uh, African American folks and Latino folks lived. Um, people who didn't, you know, weren't as able to put up as much of a fight about these things. And those neighborhoods were just destroyed. They were sometimes literally paved over. And in a lot of cases, they were split, right? You've got this giant elevated freeway suddenly running right through the middle of your neighborhood, cutting it off from the rest of the city, which, um, you know, which, which meant that those communities really were, were cut off from their sort of economic lifeblood and really started to wither. So after this had been happening for a while, people really started to fight back. And there was a lot of, like you said, pushback, a lot of demonstrations and folks organizing and trying to keep those freeways out of their communities. And you can see places where, where they succeeded and where they didn't, right? I mean, places like, um, uh, you know, there's, there's cities you can go to where you've got freeways running right through the middle of them and completely disrupting them. You've got cities like Manhattan where they kept the freeways out to the edges of the city. So they didn't like, they didn't uh, have the same, disrupt the city to quite the same extent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that kind of still happens today, right? They'll put oil refineries and um, they'll go fracking and uh, they'll just put usually horrible industries in, in cities or in um, areas where people really can't give too much of a fight. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It kind of still happens. 
Oh, absolutely. All the time. So what are some ways that these companies extract sand and what what is what's a preferred sand? What's a usable? So there's lots of different kinds of sand. And we, like I said, we use sand for lots of different things, for glass and for silicon chips and so on. Um, but the most, what we mostly use sand for, the number one thing by far that we use sand for is concrete. And for concrete, you don't really need any kind of really special sand. You need the kind of, you know, the sand that you'd see on a beach or, you know, in a, in a sand lot somewhere. Um, that sand is mostly quartz. Uh, most of those grains in there, it's a mix of stuff, but most of those grains are usually quartz. Um, and this is part of why concrete is such a widely used and such a popular uh, building material is because you can find that stuff pretty much everywhere in the world. And it's, um, it's, it's easy to get. It's pretty cheap to get. Um, but the problem is when you're digging up the, the quantities that we're digging up in today's world, it can cause massive environmental damage. So to give you an idea, we're, we use about 50 billion tons of sand and gravel every year. That's enough to cover the entire state of California every single year. Wow. Yeah. And um, yeah, and like I say, when you're pulling up that much of anything, it's going to cause some real damage. So one of the places, uh, one of our main places where we get sand is rivers. There's lots of sand on the bottoms of rivers, on river banks, and on floodplains next to rivers, places where, you know, over the centuries, rivers have, have overflowed their banks and left sand behind, or they've changed courses over the years. So when you go pulling sand out of a river, um, which is probably the number one way that we do it, it, it's easy to do, right? You just put a barge out in the middle of the river, drop a big suction pipe down to the bottom of the river, basically just like a big straw, and just suck all that sand up from the bottom of the river onto your boat. You're good to go. But when you do that, uh, a few things happen. One is anything that was living down on that river bottom, you have just annihilated its habitat, right? Whatever kind of fish or shellfish or plant life was down there, you've just wiped them out. Mm -hmm. Second is you stir up all the muck and the mud and the silt and whatever else was down on the bottom of that river, and that clouds up the water, right? It, it like literally throws all that junk up into the water, um, and it can stay there for quite a long time. So anything that's swimming in that river, um, whatever kind of fish or you know, porpoises, sometimes they can literally suffocate on all, the, on all that stirred up muck. Third thing is uh, you cut off the sunlight, all that stirred up. Uh, mud and silt and everything else blocks sunlight from getting through the water down to whatever plant life or coral reefs were down there before. Um, and so that, and which can kill them if they don't get sunlight, they die just like plants that live above ground. So that kind of, that kind of sand mining, river sand mining has done huge damage all over the world. It's wiped out coral reefs and mangrove forests, seagrass beds, it's endangered, um, put a lot of stress on endangered species like certain kinds of turtles and freshwater porpoises um, killed off huge numbers of fish and birds it's a very big problem that again it's so crazy because you know whenever you hear about about these type of, of problems right with with fisheries and with uh destroying rivers etc it's always with oil companies or 
uh, gas companies or it's you just never really hear about my, you know sand mining companies doing this either legally or illegally uh, so it's so crazy when i read in the book i'm like wow this i literally have never heard about this before yeah it's wild i mean most people really have no idea i should say i mean in some places like in india for instance where they have a really really severe problem um with sand mining and um where it's gotten so bad that um armed gangs have actually taken over a lot of the a lot of the trade and are killing people just like gangs do everywhere so in india people are are it does get a lot more coverage than it does here because there's so much violence that goes along with it so why is it especially prevalent in in india would you say is that because they have some sort of i don't know you know lax uh government or because they have really good uh sand and and a worldwide demand for the sand well i think it's a couple of things one is um one is that india is developing very very fast their economy is growing super fast which means that they're building cities like crazy right they're adding to their population all the time and the size of their cities is growing just like you can't imagine along with also you know everything else that's made out of concrete airports dams freeways all that stuff so there's huge demand for sand just unbelievable demand for the stuff um and India is kind of a, a lot of parts of it are kind of almost like lawless in the sense that there's so much corruption in the system um, that if you, if you've got enough money, you can get away with just about anything. So if you want to go in and illegally dig all the, the sand out of a river, it might be against the law, but you know, you just pass around enough bribes to the right police officers, the right government officials you can pretty much get away with it. How was that a scary moment that you had uh, when uh, when you guys went to to that sanding mine operation in, in India? Yeah, I mean, I so I was there um, as I talk about in the book. I the first um, the first case that really got me started on this whole uh, investigation was was the the murder of one particular uh, farmer in a little village about an hour south of Delhi. Basically, what had happened was. Um, this sand mafia, as they call them, had come to town, um, just took over about 200 acres of the village's farmland, ripped up all the crops, stripped up away all the topsoil, and started digging up the sand to sell it to developers up in Delhi. So this guy, Paliram Chohan, he was sort of a kind of a local leader and tried to get them to stop. You know, he organized demonstrations and he went to the police and he went to uh, courts and the media, but he just couldn't get any traction, like I said, because there's so much corruption in the system. But he, he did kind of get under their skin. He was sort of getting in their way. So at a certain point, the sand miners took this guy aside and said, look, you're kind of, you're really starting to annoy us. Cut it out or we're going to kill you. But he didn't stop. He kept it up. And just a few days after they threatened him, uh, three guys uh, showed up at his house, burst in, and shot him dead. Wow! Yeah. So, so when I got started, he, I was, I was investigating that murder. When I went, I talked to his, um, you know, to his widow and to his son and to his family. Got the whole story, and then I went out with his son to the sand mine that had started all the trouble in the first place. And while we were there, um, 
much to our dismay, we ran right into kind of the head San mafioso, the guy who had who had threatened, who had told Palaram Chohan that he was going to kill him. And there was a pretty tense few minutes there where it was him and a few of his goons and me and um, Palaram Chohan's son and and um, uh, this driver that I'd hired out of Delhi with us saying, you know, we're going to, with him saying like, you've got to give us your film. You've got to, you are not leaving here. And with us saying, yes, we are. Yes, we are. And finally, we literally just dove into the car and stomped on the gas pedal and took off. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That must have been hairy, right? Yeah, that was, that was stressful for sure. For sure. But listen, I mean, you know, it was a stressful moment for me, but Paliram's son, he still lives there. He still lives in this village where this, this these gangsters are still active. I mean, you know, that guy, that guy's a real hero. He's he's still speaking out against them, still trying to get somebody to do something about it. That he's really taking a lot of risk on. Me, I was at risk for, you know, five minutes. He's yeah, you know, at risk all the time. So and I mean, is there any traction? Is he, is he, there's some momentum that he's, that he's gaining? No, they, it's in the courts. I mean, the guys have been charged. The guys who threatened his father have been charged, but um, the, the courts in India work very, very slowly. And again, like many people told me, if you've got enough money, you can, you can slow things down even more. So last time I, I checked in, which was a few months ago, it was still, you know, nothing had happened basically. Well, I, I hope that, uh, you know, he gets justice. Yeah. Um, that's, that's unfortunate. So in the book, you, you mentioned, just we're, we're going to switch it a little bit, that um, China used more cement in the last eight years in the U.S. as used in the, in the whole entire 20th century. And, you know, I, I, I thought that stat was just mind-blowing. Um, and China, obviously, with their economic boom, kind of similar to, to India, is basically plowing through so many different types of resources without much care of the way they extract it or dispose of it. Um, it's obviously not the most sustainable, especially since they have, I, I can't remember the number, but it's, it's, it's in the millions of people moving from rural areas into cities each year. How long can they actually sustain this? I mean, they have to, to get these, you know, minerals from across the world. So how long? Well, that's a good question. Um, but uh, for quite a while, I mean, the, the problem isn't so much getting the minerals. The problem isn't so much the supply of sand. The problem really is the damage that's being done by extracting it. Right? There's lots of sand in the world. I mean, it's, it's actually the most abundant thing on the surface of the planet. But the problem is, it's very much like what's happening with the oil and gas industries. There's, there's still a lot of fossil fuels left in the planet. But the stuff that's easy to get is pretty much tapped out. And so we're having to go further and further and do more and more damage to get at the stuff that's left, right? So that's why we're doing things like fracking and deep sea offshore oil drilling to get the oil we need, you know, which is way more destructive, much more expensive, much more difficult than what we had to do 50 years ago. Well, the exact same thing is is starting to happen with sand where the stuff that's easy to get, that's close to the cities where you want to use it, that stuff is increasingly gone. And so we're having to go further and further and do more and more uh, damage to the environment to to get at what we need. 
but they need specific sand, right? They can't just go and set up operation in the Sahara Desert and start extracting all the, the you know, the desert, all the desert sand. Right. That's a very good point. We can't use desert sand at all, which always, you know, is such a terrible irony. Because people always ask me, well, like, there's all this tons of sand in deserts, right? Like you said, like in the yeah. Sahara and the Gobi. and But believe it or not, all that desert sand is pretty much useless to us. And the reason is the grains are actually the wrong shape. See, desert sand has been eroded over thousands and millions of years by wind. Whereas the, and that's given it, that's made the grains kind of more rounded and smooth compared to the grains of sand that have been eroded by water, kind of grains that you find in the bottom of rivers or on beaches or on bottoms of lakes or even on the bottom of the ocean. Those grains, the water eroded grains are much more uh, angular. They've got more corners and, and sharp edges. So they lock together um, and form a much more stable structure. Whereas those rounded desert grains don't do that. It's like the difference between trying to build something out of a stack, a great big stack of millions of little marbles, as opposed to a stack of millions of little bricks. So the preferred sands are silica sands, right? Well, yeah. So, or, or is that for, or is that for something else? Yeah. So silica sand. So let me just back up a quick minute. So, like I said, most sure. sand is uh, most sand in the world is quartz. And quartz is a yeah. form of silica, of silicon dioxide. Okay. Um, within the industry, they distinguish between construction sand, um, which tends, to, which is mostly quartz. So it's mostly silica based, but has a lot of other stuff mixed into it. Whatever other kind of rock is around in the local geology, you know, feldspar or flint or chert or whatever else. Um, silica sands, um, the way they means in the, in the industry's parlance, silica sands are very high purity sands, sand that has a very, very high silica or quartz content, like 95% and above silica. And that's the stuff that they use for applications like glass and silicon chip making. Because for those things, you need a much higher purity sand. I understand. So that stuff is is more rare. Like the basic construction sand, you can find it everywhere. Every country in the world has at least some of that stuff. Silica sand is is harder to come by. It's more unusual. And of course, the the sort of further up the ladder of purity you go, the the more and more rare that it that it becomes. So for instance, for things like solar panels and silicon chips, you need extremely high purity silica sands and and those are the, you only find those in a in a limited number of places around the world where do you usually find them where are the where are the more ubiquitous um there's you know there there are lots of places many countries we have a lot of it here um there's a lot of it in china there's quite a bit in russia in latin american countries think about those kinds of applications especially the super high-end super high purity stuff is it, there aren't a lot of sources for it, but you also don't need very much of it, right? Like construction sand, if you imagine, uh, you know, we use billions and billions of tons of that because anything you build out of concrete, you need many, many tons of sand. Just, just building a basic garage is about a hundred tons of concrete, right? So imagine how much goes into, you know, a skyscraper or an airport. 
you know, we're talking thousands, millions of tons of concrete. But to make a little silicon chip, you only need like, you know, a little, not even a spoonful. So even though there's not a lot of the supplies are relatively small, the the amounts that you need are also relatively small. So it's actually the, those rare sands are actually not a not really a, a problem. It's the it's the construction sand that's really that creates a much bigger problem because we need so much of it and we have to take out such enormous volumes of it. What what was the stat? I think it said we're adding about eight New York cities every year. Exactly. Our population is about 65 million people with more and more people moving into cities as well. And there's finite room and there's finite resources. So what, you know, what do we do? Yeah, that's the big question, right? So if you ask me, there's only, so, okay, first of all, there, there are things that we can do to address the question of sand, the problem of of overuse of sand. Um, there are some, uh, uh, um, uh, first of all, we can mine it more sustainably. We can be more careful. We can have better rules and regulations about how and where we mine sand. Um, that would certainly help. Um, there are some technological fixes that might help. There's a lot of research going on around the world to come up with ways to make concrete that uses less sand or that uses other things in place of sand, like shredded plastic or shredded bamboo, things like that, or concrete that lasts longer so it doesn't have to be replaced as often. Um, and so those things, all those things can help. We should be doing all those things. But if you ask me, the, the real answer is we need to actually reframe the question. The question isn't really so much how can we use less sand it's how can we use less of everything right because like like you said it's a very familiar sounding problem right we know we're using weight we're burning way too much fossil fuel we're taking too many fish out of the ocean we're cutting down too many trees we're using too much of all these things including sand and these are not separate problems they're all symptoms of the same problem which is just that we're consuming too much we human beings and by that i mean mostly us human beings in the rich world in the western world and and people everywhere else who want to live like the way that we do there just aren't enough resources on the planet for all of us for seven billion people to live the way that we live here in the united states We have got to find ways to live our lives and to build our cities, which is where most people now live, in ways that consume less of all resources. So what what, what are some um, innovations that you see coming out of this uh, market right now to to replace cement? Um, What are some innovative ideas and materials that people are working on to replace the current uh, standard industry, industry practice? So there's quite a few. Um, the stuff that I mean, I think would be would be the best if they can get it to work is there's a couple of different approaches where people are trying to come up, are trying to make concrete uh, using basically garbage, either shredded plastic or shredded rubber instead of sand, right? And obviously, if we can get those things to work at scale, that would be a fantastic win-win, right? Because we'd save on uh, all that garbage going out into the ocean or into our landfills, and we wouldn't have to dig up so much sand. So there is um, 
there's folks working on this in the Netherlands with, uh, with shredded rubber. And there's actually, they've built a few miles of, of freeway that you can drive on in the Netherlands that are all made with shredded, with shredded rubber. So that's very encouraging. Um, and I know there's some researchers in India who are looking into shredded plastic. Uh, I don't think they've gotten further than the laboratory stage, but that would be terrific. Um, needless to say, uh, there's a thing called hempcrete, which is concrete that's made with, uh, hemp fibers. Okay. Um, and, uh, apparently it works pretty well for, uh, for some applications, right. For, for really simple things like road base, like for laying down the concrete, that's, that's the, the, the foundation for roads. You can use hempcrete for that kind of thing, which is great. Um, but it doesn't, um, you can't use it for, for, um, things like building walls of a skyscraper, sort of more complicated, uh, things, but, um, but so those are really encouraging. And uh, what else? There's some really cool tech uh, around uh, making concrete last longer. There's these different kinds of what they call self-healing concrete. The idea there is all concrete cracks, right? If you just look at any sidewalk, you'll see there's always cracks in it. And over time, eventually those cracks, they fill with water, the water freezes or you know, other things get into them and those cracks widen and eventually the concrete starts to break apart. But there are different concretes that people are working with that contain different kinds of chemical compounds or different biological enzymes that can actually heal themselves. When the crack opens up, the air uh, activates those enzymes embedded in the concrete and they then, the, the enzymes emit more calcium to to seal those cracks back up again so that stuff is still mostly experimental but um but uh you know it could it could be a big big help do do i don't know if you remember but a few years ago there was this um invention i guess that came out i think it was might have been out of colorado um where they were putting solar panels down as it was like i guess solar panels were supposed to uh, replaced uh, the the asphalt road, and they would be all powered by the sun. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't it's a know. Great that, idea. I don't know if they ever got anywhere with it. No, I think I, I read somewhere that they just they paved like one small, like a couple of roads in like a little neighborhood somewhere in Colorado. But for some reason they never went into to, to mass production, or they never got funding. I, I don't know what. But I always thought that was a you know a genius idea. I just I don't know what what came of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can see the appeal, right? Because the, the roads are just lying there out in the sun all day yeah. long. And if there was a way that they could be soaking up energy and, um, you know, and, and reusing it, that'd be great. It's hard. You know, a lot of these technologies, they, they sound great. They're, they're great in principle. They might even work in the lab. But scaling them up yeah. um, can really be a problem, like getting them to work on a really gigantic scale that's, that's also affordable. That's a big problem because, yeah. you know, like we can make, we, we know how to make like these self-healing concretes, but it's expensive. They're much, much, much more expensive than just using regular concrete. So it's hard to, you know, if you're a contractor or, you know, 
you know, it's much cheaper for you to just use regular concrete. And even if you have to replace some of that concrete 10 years down the road, it's still a lot cheaper than using these, you know, these new high tech things. So, so that's where a lot of these things stumble. Yeah. So I, I, w- I went on, on, on the wired and, um, I saw that your first article was in March 17th, uh, 1997. And it was basically an article rebuilding a broken society online. And it was about Bosnia, how they want to put all the textbooks online. Do you remember that uh, article? Oh my God, I sure do. Yeah, good <laughs> for you doing your homework, man. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there was, I, I read, I, I couldn't read all of them. There were a lot, but I definitely read some and, and, I, and I thought they were really, really interesting. So I was just interested to see how far back it went and it went all the way back to 97. And uh, it was it was an interesting article as well. Obviously, completely different times. Yeah. But how do you see or how do you think journalism has changed? Do you think it's it's more partisan now now than it's ever been? Do you think it's a little bit more infotainment maybe than than it used to be? Wow, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, in a way, I think journalism is today is is more of everything because there's so much more of it thanks to the web you know like i mean now anybody of course can start a publication right like Mm -hmm. 30 years ago you know you just had you had the networks the big tv networks and radio networks and uh daily newspapers and a few magazines and that was it so if you wanted to get a story out there if you wanted you know if you uh there was really only a very few places to do that. And now, of course, you know, anybody can post about anything they want. You know, there's a, there's a way in which anybody can do journalism. So, and, and are, right? There's a billion tiny, you know, online-only publications doing all kinds of, some of them are doing really great work. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's also been, you know, with the explosion of, of, of um, you know, first uh, cable, all the cable networks, and now with streaming, you've got, you know, way more TV than ever before. And most of it is just junk. Yeah. Right. So there's like, there's way more trash TV than there's ever been by far. Yeah. And way more hyper-partisan news networks and news reporting and, and all the rest of it. I mean, I think the biggest problem for journalism right now is what's happening to local newspapers. You know, I mean, the things like, you know, the, the national publications like New York Times and, and Washington Post, they're still doing okay. But local newspapers, the folks who, you know, the, whose job it is to, you know, find out when the local mayor is is taking bribes or when the, you know, the city council member, you know, uh, it gives a nice fat contract to his sister or something like that. Those newspapers have been in, they've been in a crisis for the last 20 years. They've been losing advertising to the, to the internet mm-hmm. and they've been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And now with coronavirus, uh, a lot of them, a lot of them are definitely going to disappear. And that, I mean, that could be a, that's going to be a very big problem because it, it just means really like there's no watchdogs, right? In most cities. And if you're not in a really big city like New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, who is going to 
keep an eye on on the powers that be. You know, if you live in Nashville or or Pittsburgh or Orlando, you know, who's going to keep an eye on the city government, on the big developers, on the whatever big corporations are in your city? It's not going to be bloggers. It's not going to be, you know, Twitter influencers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's and, and, and that's also something I think most people don't really pay too much attention to the local news. Um, yeah, that's probably not something that most people put emphasis on, especially, you know, like, like you said, within it, the, the barrier to entry is very low. Everyone can have a quote unquote media outlet, you know, open a YouTube channel and, and, and talk about their opinions. You know, it's good on the one hand, there's more information out there and people can express themselves. But the problem is when it seems like everyone's on the, on, on the level playing field, when Alex Jones and some blogger and and the New York times is looked as no, but he said this and they said this, but who knows which one is right. That's when, you know, public discourse, kind of goes down the drain when when um, people think that these two you know outlets are on the same level so yeah yeah, yeah absolutely unfortunate well vince i know you have to go i don't want to take too much of your time i appreciate you coming on um for uh, all the people that are listening please make sure to check out the world in a grain the story of sand and how he transformed civilization it's an amazing book uh super informative and yeah, is there anything, you know, any upcoming projects, something you want to tell the listeners about? Uh, well, I'm kind of, you know, like everybody else, my head is full of nothing but coronavirus right now. So <laughs> yeah. I'm working on a couple of stories for Wired about that. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's really hard to focus on anything else. Yeah. So yeah, just look out for those. Hopefully, I, I saw that Kumo just said that uh, we're uh, he extended it to I think it was May fifteenth, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, May fifteenth. Yeah, oh, well, that's okay. and and that's the same date here, by the way. That's what they're telling us. Oh, really? So at least you got company. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all in this together, like they said. So that's right. All right. So yeah, man. Thanks again, and uh, have a sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Not a problem. Stay safe, right. and uh, we'll be in touch. Sounds great. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.